Tanajan, there's a question here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you said that uh, the fabrications uh, can be, um, you know, seen in the context of the first, second, as well as the fourth noble truths. Mm -hmm. So, in context of the first noble truth, uh, we have to see how do how how do we see the uh, the, the different fabrications? Are we to divide them into the five aggregate groups, or should we see them in some other way? Uh, how how are we to comprehend them? Uh, which is you the can do them e either either in ter in terms of the five aggregates or in terms of those three fabrications. Both of the frameworks are useful, but you know, give, give me an example. What can, what, what are you suffering about so, right now? So normally, when we think of the first first noble truth, um, we I think most common uh, for people at least is. Uh, uh, the second uh, uh, second aggregate, which is feeling. Um, so most people feel pain. So the feeling of pain is what normally is associated with, with suffering. Uh, but I'm thinking uh, maybe uh, the, the form aggregate might be birth, uh, which is listed, but, I, but it's not normally thought of as suffering anyway it's it's still something that that one should one has to train oneself to see it as suffering and then uh, maybe maybe uh, maybe some sort of uh, bodily pains uh, that are that are to be seen as uh, bodily fabrications that are coming under the first noble truth how, how do we see that uh, how, how am i supposed to divide out my experience to find out okay this comes under the first noble truth okay for example you have a pain Mm. Um, now, there are some pains where you don't suffer from them. Right. For example, someone's giving you a really deep massage and it's painful. So, oh, it feels good. Mm -hmm. Even though it's painful. But because you know, you have a perception that this is going to be good for you. Mm. Whereas with other pains, you have a perception, okay, this, this, is, this is, you know, creating, this is going to, kill me this is what happens when you're meditating you know and your, your leg goes numb and your mind starts engaging and you know this is going, i'm going to go get paralyzed i won't be able to walk properly and this is going to be bad for my health I mean, you can create all kinds of suffering around that simple fact of physical pain because mm -hmm. when the buddha is talking about the pain in the first noble truth it's more mental pain as opposed to physical pain mm. And then you want to analyze it into, okay, is, is there a physical, physical component here? What about my perception around that pain? Mm. Um, John Mahabu has some very good questions he should ask yourself. You know, does this pain have a shape? Does this pain have an intention? And you ask yourself, you know, what are the perceptions I have around this pain? Why, does this, why is there a bridge between the physical pain and the mental pain? And you begin to realize that perception seems to be the, the big instigator. Mm. If you can perceive, you know, that your awareness as one thing and the physical pain as something separate, then there is no mental, there's no mental suffering. So perception, would it be right to say that perception is the one thing that can uh, help, uh, that, is, that is required, correct perception or skillful perception is the one that right. is required for, right. for comprehension? Right. Uh, okay. I'll give you an example. 
Mm -hmm. I was in Singapore one time and I was taken to a Chinese doctor who was going to treat my back. And I had, he, he couldn't speak English, I couldn't speak Chinese. I had no idea what treatment he was planning. Yeah, I think and so he had me lie down on my stomach and he started rubbing oil into my back, which felt nice to begin with. But then he started rubbing more and more strongly until my skin got very raw. And then he took these bamboo poles that he'd cut into little whisks and started beating on me. And I had no idea how much longer this was going to last. And the, and the first thought that went through my mind was, okay, what bad karma have I done? <laughs> <laughs> and then I figured, wait a minute, I've, 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 got to, I've got to deal with this so I don't suffer from it. And I began to realize that if I saw the pain as going away as soon as I was sensitive to it, in other words, instead of thinking of the pain coming at me, I saw the pain going away. It's like sitting in the back seat of a station wagon facing back. And as soon as something comes into the range of your vision, it's already going away. And if I could see the pain is going away, then it was okay. I was able to, I, was, I didn't suffer from the treatment. Okay. But other kinds of uh, pains uh, and, and other kinds of uh, fabrications are there, uh, which are probably also falling under the first noble truth. But mm -hmm. I don't know if we can actually uh, deal with them in that same way. For example, birth. Uh, like we, we've, birth is, uh, is a, I think, uh, maybe I would class it under uh, form fabrication, but it seems like it's not something we can do much about. Uh, we're born, except yeah. that mm -hmm. possibly we may be able to correct uh, or maybe control the course in which we may be born in future lifetimes or maybe stop that process and at all, uh, to, to completely in case we have the ability. But it seems like that's completely outside our, our, our control. Uh, okay, well, the fact of birth may be outside of your control, but the question of whether you're going to suffer from it or not, that's, that's in your power. Uh -huh. It's, the, again, the perceptions you have around this. I see. So you're still saying you know, that it's like, you know, like the child says, Mom and Dad, why did you force life on me? Why did you make me be born? I see. And then Mom and so, Dad just saying, it was you wanted to be born. I mean, <laughs> right. you were the one who came in. <laughs> so it's, it, it would still, uh, but, but, but I was thinking maybe it would be, uh, it would be uh, that one should actually use the fourth noble truths to uh, train the train the fabrication such so that the birth is in a different place or a better place or something. Is that, is that? You, you can do that, but you've also got to, you're dealing with the fact that you're already born in this lifetime and use the fourth noble truth in order to make the best, best use out of that birth. Okay. 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 All right. Okay. Thank you. So Ken, you have your hand raised. Go ahead. Okay. Hello, Tanajan. Hello. I have a two-part question for you related to Ajahn Lee having you write to his students not to look at the content of the labels, but the act of the mind's labeling. So my mm -hmm. question is, from a solid level of concentration, I'm having trouble seeing what precedes the mind going out to its object. In other words, seeing the fabricated nature of the intention just to give an example when i'm sitting in the morning mm -hmm. and i hear a car mm -hmm. go by it's like instantaneous car or whatever sound mm -hmm. i have mm -hmm. to hear and mm -hmm. i don't know whether i need to go to a 
it's a question of going to a more, you know, a higher level of concentration to really be able to slow things down. But wonder if you have any thoughts about how to see that that in, that fabricated intention involved with that. Okay, it's the best place to see this is going to be in the concentration. That as you're you reach a point sometimes where you realize, oh, you have a choice between staying in one level of concentration and going to a deeper one. And there'll, there'll be a choice at that point. It's, it, the, the advantage of doing this in concentration is that things get slowed down. And right. They're more focused. Right. And once you're able to see that, you know, the, the moment where you're deciding, okay, I'm going to drop this and go to something else. And you can do it consciously. And this is why the Buddha talks about being very conscious about going from one level to another. Because oh. sometimes we just slip. Okay. And we're, and we're not paying much careful attention. Then it just it settles down willy-nilly wherever it's going to go. Okay. Okay. Whereas the Buddha is saying, if you're, if you're more conscious about the different steps, then it's going to be easier to see those steps as, as you deal with regular sensory experience. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's very helpful. The, mm -hmm. the second part of my question, from a solid level of concentration, I can see the allure and the drawbacks mm -hmm. of the labeling, the stress, the subtle stress that's involved, and mm -hmm. from the drawbacks that, they, that the act of labeling is not worth it. Mm -hmm. And beginning to experience, I say beginning to experience a feeling of disenchantment with it. Mm -hmm. But it feels like a huge step from moving from the disenchantment to dispassion ces cessation. Mm -hmm. Just keep doing it. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Get, get used to it because part of it is also that if it's when you really see the allure and then you, you see how stupid the allure is that's when you can let go okay 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 thank you mm -hmm. olivia uh, go ahead unmute thank you thank you for your talk um so there was something intriguing about this concept of we're going to have the five aggregates and craving right now. And so may, there might be some that are more skillful than others. And I've been experiencing a lot of craving for meditation, craving for renunciation. And it seems mm -hmm. hypocritical. Like it's, I'm, I recognize <laughs> that this process of craving is, and yet it's to remove craving. <laughs> but um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about how to discern when there is, when it is a kind of a skillful motion versus the mind sort of co-opting uh, that okay. kind of mental state. Um, craving, and, craving for the path is perfectly fine. In other words, it's, that's the only way you're going to get out of your other cravings is to start craving something better. And so you don't feel, don't feel hypocritical about it. Just realize, as the Buddha himself said, all things skillful and unskillful are rooted in desire. And so you want to be able to 
encourage this the skillful desires because you realize okay, this is this is going to lead to something that really will be good for my long-term welfare and happiness and you 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 want to encourage that now it's only after you've started mastering some of these things that you can start saying well Anyway, these things have their drawbacks as well. I want something better. That's when you move on. So, you know, crave the path as much as you want. And don't feel hypocritical about it. Okay. And then there will be some natural point where letting go of the raft or right, any stage right. of the raft will right, just right. occur. Yeah. It's like... You know, there's that far side cartoon where the you know the cows are are standing around eating grass, and one of them jerks their head up and says, "Wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, as long as grass tastes good, keep on eating the grass. And then somebody realizes, "Hey, wait, this is grass," <laughs> and you move on. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Ram. So. Uh, Ajahn, thank you so much. Uh, in the beginning, you mentioned uh, I, the raw material for fabrication is uh, past actions. So I kind of uh, uh, took it as a, that's probably at the fundamental level, that's where the causality is. But sometimes if for me to, in my practice, understand fabrication deliberately, are there anything that you would suggest in grasping the origination of these fabrications. Okay, in terms of your raw material, you're gonna be pretty much getting what you, you know. You don't, you don't have much choice over the raw material that's being presented. And so you wanna look for the origination in the present moment. It's okay, what, what is my desire right now? What am I looking for? Um, how is my desire shaped by my intentions? How is my desire shaped by my perceptions? Um, are my perceptions setting me so, setting me up for something unskillful, or kind of should I change the perceptions? I mean, this is one of the reasons why it's good to read in in the canon because the Buddha gives you so many alternative perceptions for looking at things. Mm. You know, you understand a particular situation in light of one perception. You say, wait a minute, I've been holding on to this perception; it has no relationship to reality, or at least it's very. You know, it's, it's getting, it's making me do something unskillful. I, I should change my perception around this. So there's a and deliberate, think, yeah, there's a deliberate yeah. intentionality there. Isn't right, you? right, right. Okay, I see Maria also. Good morning, Ajahn. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. I'm trying to find you. Oh, do you see me now? Um, I'm just checking to see if something that I'm doing matches what you just taught us. So one of the things that I do is I try to observe in myself if um, ill will or judgment, some negative state, mind state is coming up in me. Mm -hmm. And if I notice that that's happening, that's a flag to me that I have wrong view, that mm -hmm. I'm looking at the situation with um, a destructive point of view. Mm -hmm. And so that flag 
is a, it's a flag to me, that feeling of hostility or negativity towards the person or anger. Mm-hmm. That's a flag to me that I have the wrong point of view and I need to raise my leg, level of consciousness and, and challenge my perspective on the situation to have a more objective, compassionate point of view. And mm-hmm. when I can do that, then I can recognize what would be a better point of view to see this situation from. And it let, helps, helps me let go of the anger and the hostility. Right. Is that what you're trying to describe? The, right, right, right. That my point words, of view is what's creating the perception. So I have to change the perception by choosing a different point of view. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can, you, know, you can play with the different perceptions or different th- thought fabrications. You know, think, think of it in terms of fabrication. What would be a good perception? What would be a good w- line of thought around this? Um, I know some people say, well, this doesn't this seem so artificial? And I said, well, the whole process of fabrication is artificial to begin with. It's just that some fabrications are more habitual. They seem more natural as a result. But we can step back and come up with new ways of fabricating around the situation that are just as true and actually more beneficial. So uh, the way that I look at that is that my point of view is often very uh, self-absorbed and uh, small and myopic and just my personal Maria Balsamo point of view. Mm-hmm. And when I recognize this is happening within me, I can ask myself the question, what would a, a wiser, more objective, mm-hmm. divine being, how would they mm-hmm. see this situation? I ask myself yeah. that question. I often get a different answer than my point of view. And I try to adopt <laughs> their point of view. Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. would the Buddha think of this? How right, would right, the, yeah. the Buddha might see the other person, perhaps that bird person is a politician. They know more about that politician than, than I do. They might know mm-hmm. more about the state of what they know than I do. Mm-hmm. So that helps me recognize that my point of view is so narrow and small. And then I try to get a broader point of view, a more objective, wiser point of view. Yeah, yeah. Here, this is where it's helpful. The Buddha has a concept he calls, he calls safeguarding the truth, where you ask yourself, I mean, these things that I believe, on, on the basis of what do I believe them? Uh, you know, is, there's hearsay, reports. I mean, most, most of the, inter- the internet is 99% hearsay. <laughs> um, you hear something and, if, and it fits with a view that you already have. Again, that's not necessarily proof that it's true. Uh, there's an analogy that that seems to make sense to you. Again, that's not proof. So you realize a lot of the things that I that I really believe are true. I may not have a really solid foundation for that. So it helps to sort of pry you loose a little bit to, to begin with. And then secondly, you're saying you know, if an arahant were looking at this situation, the arahant would not be suffering. So I obviously am not looking at this with the same eyes as an arahant. How would an arahant look at this? And, that, and then you say, okay, there, there must be a way to be in this situation and not suffer. I see Jeff and Rita. Good morning, Tanya John. Morning. Community. Um, I'd like to clarify for myself just what you've said and the other participants have been saying. Um, and I'll start with you, this comment. Um, if you don't question that you're eating grass, you're going to continue to eat grass. Right, right. 
So would it be safe to say if we're following the Buddha's path and we're feeling some kind of stress, we're still eating some grass? Mm -hmm. So that's the starting point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so from, from the point where I am to at least stream enter, I need to be evaluating then what are my perceptions? How are my perceptions continually putting me in this suffering? Mm -hmm. And so it, How's my question? So where is the, the focal point of any moment? Where's the compass of that directional that this is causing me suffering? Like I, I don't know stream entry yet. Mm -hmm. So I need to, to navigate through, it's still me doing the fabricating. And yeah. so I, somehow have an evaluation that this would be better, you know, X would be better than Y or Y would be better than X. Mm -hmm. So without getting caught up in the, I, the overall identity that's me, how am I knowing that I'm heading in the direction of this is a better uh, choice, you know, Y is a better choice than X versus I'm just circulating mm -hmm. through my identity. Well, you have to ask yourself, in which, what state of mind would, would in, inspire you to take one choice over another? If you can clearly see that there's, it would be anger, or it would be lust, or some unskillful mental state that would incline you to choose X over Y, it's okay, I better, I better avoid X. Okay. Now, if you can't see any distinction between the two, then you basically flip a coin and then try it out. We'll try out one of the others and see what the results will be. So presumably, um, you know, uh, generosity is solid, virtue is solid. I'm, I'm meditating. So then the choices through the day would would then become, which do I think would be an even more skillful and beneficial course of action? Right, they, right. It would be really subtle. Uh, I'm yeah. going to go read some Dhamma. I'm going to meditate. A bit yeah. more or something like that yeah. um so uh then another question with that is you mentioned that the buddha the buddha said if you're uh defining yourself you're limiting yourself is he speaking of limiting ourselves as another form of identity that's will get us into the the, the craving turning becoming cycle Mm -hmm. is, is he asking us to see where where we can step out of those identities but to what like or or where or how to know a, a, a more subtle limiting identity versus a coarser mm -hmm. one it's kind of plays into how how do i know that that I am headed in the direct, you know, the correct direction. I've been traveling a while. It seems pretty good, but nothing's really, I'm not seeing any subtler shifts. Okay, well, the Buddha wants you to focus more on your actions than on the question of identity. Just put the question of identity aside as much as possible. The only identity that you need in order to practice 
is the identity one that I am capable of doing this. Two, I'm the one who's responsible for my choices. So I'm responsible, I'm capable. And yes, I do want a higher level of happiness. I want a more secure level of happiness. That's, those are the only aspects of identity that, that he really recommends. And anything beyond that, he's just, just don't think, in, don't think thing in terms of question of your identity as so, so much as, well, this, this course of action that I want to do, what are the results going to be? Focus more and more on your actions than on your sense of, than your, on your sense of who Jeff is. You might look at that article that, that just came out on Dhamma Talks, it's called Clinging and the End of Clinging. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I may yeah. have. Which, which talks about how the Buddha, of the various forms of clinging, the Buddha has, you know, cling to habits and practices, just cling to skillful habits, cling to skillful practices, as your main, as your main source of clinging as you're on the path. There was another question, but I'm going to set okay. it aside. Okay, fine. Thank you. So, Balaji. Tanajan. Uh, so, the next thing that I'm asking about is uh, fabrication in the context of the second noble truth. Mm -hmm. uh, you did mention uh, that this is fabrication occurs in three contexts. So, the first noble truth, I, I, I asked earlier uh, but I'm now thinking uh, in context of the second noble truth uh, how, again uh, normally the way I think is okay what kind of cravings do I have are these sensual cravings or are these uh, cravings for uh, taking on an identity but I'm not very sure uh, if it is even necessary for me to divide it up because uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha does say one should know the diversity in in fabrication uh, so I'm kind of wondering how, how I would even think about the diversity in fabrication in the context of second noble truth or do I even need to do that look at here you're more you're more interested again in the question of what is a skillful desire as opposed to what is an unskillful desire Okay, okay, nice. okay. So, uh, so skillful desire to meditate, uh, to maybe do walking meditation, that's a skillful desire. Mm -hmm. But to do, say, uh, something else uh, that may be very wrong to do, uh, maybe like killing or something, that kind of a mm -hmm. thing is an unskillful desire. Okay, yeah. okay. And uh, in terms of the fourth, uh, uh, noble truth. I think I understand that the the, the whole path is is a, is a fabrication. Right. But the, the 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 question there that I had is, of those, it seems like the verbal fabrication uh, seems to be coming first. If I'm not wrong, uh, instead of bodily fabrication, it seems like the verbal because. Uh, the Buddha seems to put right speech first mm -hmm. uh, and also in terms of concentration the first thing that comes is directed thought and evaluation so it right. seems that verbal fabrication comes first and then the other things follow along is that is that right 
Yeah, I mean, right view is basically a form of verbal fabrication. Right okay. resolve is verbal fabrication. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 Thank you. Uh, Pradeep. Thank you. Thank you for offering this. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, my question is regarding the element of subjective value, value judgment mm -hmm. that you spoke of, and the element of the time slowing down. And I'm trying to understand if the deeper one is going in one's concentration practice, is it a sensible way to think of this as the deeper you are in concentration, the quicker and more deeply in your mind you are able to learn and cultivate a specific way of fabricating a particular state that you want to cultivate, be that love or beauty or compassion. Uh, and the reason why I'm asking this is, let us say that one is in a context in, in the wider life where it's harder to access a skillful state of fabrication, then it, is it probably better to not practice a lot of concentration in the first place? Because you might be wiring yourself uh, in a more unskillful way. Is that... Okay. Um, my, my my attitude generally is, except for people who are psychotic, the more the more the more concentration, the better. Okay. Because you're you're getting quicker at seeing things that are going on in the mind. You know, sometimes you hear that people say that you know they've they've done studies that show that you know, the mind, the brain has made a decision before you're consciously aware of the fact that the decision has been made, and that, that that's the argument that you know that basically that the the brain is kind of a slower part. Slower, the brain is faster than you are, basically. And I found that when you do concentration practice, you're actually speeding up your ability to see when those decisions are being made. And that's, that's all to the good Perfect. because you want you want to catch those decisions while they're being made, rather than after the fact. Yeah. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So I guess the clearer you get, the quicker your subjective value judgments would catch any any wrong direction that you were going in and then right, it, it right. just shortens the feedback loop okay super helpful thank yeah, you yeah because there's a there's a tendency of the mind to make a decision and then pretend it didn't make it <laughs> yeah we had a we had a dog back in um the monastery in thailand who in the evening would when the monks were having the, the things that are allowable for monks to eat would come and sit at and sit at our feet and and if we if we didn't offer anything to it, it would scratch scratch your leg. And then you look down, and it would look away. And pretend, pretend that it hadn't scratched your leg. <laughs> and I said, "Oh my, that's the human mind is so much like that." <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Ajahn. During the day, no. can you hear me? Sorry. During yes. the day, when you some of your actions or when one of your actions is appreciated, or you notice that others like, uh, I'm finding it uh, it keep coming to your awareness uh, during later in that day. How to handle this one, or is it when you are acting itself, you have to look uh, look for whether you are looking for any appreciation and cut there, or is there any way you can control that one? Okay, you have to be able to see these things in real time as much as you can. 
so that you can catch yourself, you know, when, what, what your reaction is, what your reasoning is for, for, a particular, for a particular action. And the more quickly you can see that, the more you understand, okay, this is why I chose that action when it, when it really was not in my best interest. And you can check, and then you understand it a lot more, more, more easily. Because if you try to go back and reconstruct the event, again, your, your, your perceptions may be getting in the way, your, um, your self-image may be getting in the way. There are lots of things that prevent you from actually seeing it in, you know, as, as it actually was. So you want to see it in real time as much as you can. And how to not get uh, take pride from it uh, when you keep acting skillfully or when people appreciate and don't get pride from it, how to do that? Could you, say, could you ask the question again? I couldn't quite hear you. If people appreciate, then automatically the pride is coming and how to stop that pride coming. Ah, we have to ask yourself, these people, they're, they're praising me. What do they want out of me? <laughs> that was always a John Fuhrman's message. Just watch out for the people who are praising you. They want something out of you. Thank you. I don't see more blue hands. I'm just curious if there's anyone who is uh, raising your physical hand in Zoom. Um, you can do that too. There's a blue hand. Ah, okay, so Michelle, uh, please go ahead. You can unmute. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, that's my son's name. <laughs> Confusing. <laughs> He's had so many Zoom classes. Um, my question is, um, a lot of my suffer, I feel it's from, one is from desire and some is from compassion. For example, um, I have a very difficult diagnosis that, um, trying to control my emotion. Um, um, I might not live long. Mm -hmm. um, I'll show my son is five years old. So I was trying to think, oh, maybe it's a good thing for him, right? So as a young age, to have a um, good big challenge. So I'm trying to like, um, get away from this maybe a fabricated truth that um, being a good parent means you be with them. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm getting at, so yeah, we can yeah. speak more. So please tell. Okay. okay, this is where you have to tell yourself that it's not necessarily the number of years you're with him; it's the the quality of the instruction and quality of the training you give him. And so you, you want to make sure that you embody good values and you teach them good values. And you'll be able to remember that. So you know, however much time you have, I mean, you, in, in some ways you're lucky that you realize that time is limited, so you have the, you have the impetus to want to make, make the most of it. You know, teach them good values about being an honest person, being a good person. You know, tr trusting in his trusting in his best intentions, and always doing, you know, always doing, you know, trying to always do the skillful thing, and always develop 
goodwill and compassion for others. And if it turns out that you, you know the, the, the diagnosis is correct that you don't have that much time with him, you know that's that's that would be his memory of you, that the good things that you you taught him. Because I mean, in speaking in in terms of the you know the number of years, that, that's the best that any parent can do for a child, anyhow. Is is, is give good values to the child. So it's suffering okay when it's coming from compassion. I think compassion is like, I think I appreciate my parents were being able to be with me while I grow up. So I felt sad mm-hmm. that he might not like aside my own side of being a good parent to be with someone. And also on the other side is thinking, oh, he will be sad. And I feel sad because of compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I don't know, like, the compassion cause suffers, but so is the suffer good. Like, yeah, yeah. and it's the clinging. You know, I I cling to live. That's why I try to take care of myself better. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of craving. Good. If I don't cling, I don't. You know, like if I feel oh this is fine, he's going to be fine, and you know, uh, it's a good challenge for him anyway. And then I feel mm-hmm. this sort of become cold. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. this. Everything's very conflicted in my case. Well, in this case, that makes perfect sense that you should do what you can in order to stay alive as long as you can. But isn't the main point of Buddhist teaching, at least in the tradition that I was surrounded with in in China, is to like don't don't cling for life, right? Like life is all emptiness. Um, You know, like this this whole thing's fake, you know. Well it's, well, it's not fake. I mean, the, the suffering is going to be real. <laughs> so, but, but you should tell is, yourself, yeah. yeah, you should tell himself, okay, I want to make the most of my relationship with my son, and so you know, whatever I can do, you know, within the realms of what's you know, what's virtuous, I'm willing to do that in order to stay alive to help the son. But you also have to have part of the mind that says, okay, if it so happens that I have to go, I have to learn how to be okay with that too. This is why when the Buddha teaches the Brahma Viharas, it's not just equanimity. There's goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. You develop all four. You don't say, well, equanimity is the highest, so I'll just go for the highest. You have to have all four. So you've got goodwill for your son, you've got compassion for your son. You're happy to see him, happy to see him happy. But then there's equanimity that, and this is what every parent has to develop, with or without a diagnosis like yours. We should say, okay, there, there will t- come a time when we have to part ways. And at that, if the time comes, I have to be okay with that. And otherwise, you're going to start just hovering around your son after you die. Right. Yep. That's very helpful. And we had a, there was a woman, who, a student of my, uh, my teacher, after, after my teacher died, she, she had raised two sons. Um, after the second son was born, um, the husband left her, so she had to raise the sons alone. And the first son was bright, athletic, personable, good-looking, you know, the ideal son. And the second son was kind of dumpy and, you know, ordinary guy. And it was the first son who was killed. Oh, no. He got in a motorcycle accident one time and, and, and was killed within 10 minutes after he'd left the house. 
And she started having a sense that the sun was still hanging around the house. There were little signs here and there. And so she came to me one time, she said, can I keep the body at the monastery? Because there's a belief in Thailand that as long as the body has not been cremated, the spirit has, has kind of a locus and the spirit will still hang around. And I said, please let the boy go. It's, it's a miserable life to be hanging around like this. And so she finally agreed to have the cremation and then that was the end of the signs that the, the spirit was still hanging around. So when the time comes to go, you say, okay, I've got to go there. There's, no, there's something better for me to do and, and learn how to be okay with that. But in the meantime, you know, for, out, out of goodwill and compassion for your son, you know, get whatever medical treatment you need that you think that will, that will be helpful. Should I prepare my son to, like, how do I, like, yeah, I don't know. Should I prepare my son to get ready for this? Well, to whatever extent you, you feel that the diagnosis is true, yes, you should let the son know that your mommy may not be around all the time. But these are the things mommy wants you to understand to, to hold on to even when mommy's not around. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Any last questions before we stop for the, for the stop the morning session? Yes, Tom John. Mm -hmm. I have a question regarding the simile of the archer. Wonder if you could clarify something. Mm -hmm. The straw mound, the straw man, or mound of clay, is mm -hmm. that the first? Jhana, being able to see in constant stress in the first jhana, what is the straw man so that you can go on and hire jhanas? It's unclear to me. Okay, the, the straw man is not the important part. It's the skill the of the archer not the firing, firing rapid shots. Got it. And accurately, accurately and also doing it in quick succession and piercing great masses. That's okay. the important part. Okay, so then, then you can go on and use that in your concentration, right. that ability. Right. Okay. Right. I thought it would be something like that. Thank you. John. <laughs> uh, Michael. Thank you. I just wanted to share one of the models that works for me very well in my meditation practice over the course of the years has been, uh, particularly when examining, talking about fabrications and understanding them is, um, because we're all inculcated and, you know, there are so many so social, cultural ways that we have been mentally constructed. Um, the house actually as a model works for me during my meditation to actually be able to see exactly how my mental confabulations are actually put together. And it's a, it's a house basically. And I look at the construction of the house and see whether or not, when I am able to identify the pieces that actually construct the house, whether they're actually well-constructed or not. And if mm -hmm. they're not, then I remove them. And I wind up disassembling the house that I originally got to perceive and construct something that's mm -hmm. much more valuable and equanimous. Okay. Thank you. Okay, one last question. All right.
Hi, Tanajan. Hi. Um, I had a bit of a follow-on, like uh, being a parent and kids and being attached to your kids, your friends or teachers or whoever. Um, does that make a... It seems like there's so much suffering that, like, you can't help it. Like, it just happens, but there's, there's so much pain in that. Like, the one is saying that suffering comes from those who are dear. It's really, really true. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, this, this, is, this is why equanimity is the hardest thing for parents to, to, to develop and also the most necessary. <laughs> I know it's I mean, and, and it doesn't get easier as the kids get older. <laughs> I know, I know I know eighty year old people you know with forty fifty year old children and they, they still you know it's they still see the child as it was that that little lump that was first born yeah we can't quite hear you Bob I should put a headset on yeah now we're okay. now we can hear you now we can hear you so it's hard, it's hard to work on, but something that's really necessary to work on. And then you think like in this life, I'm a parent, but maybe I wasn't before, or maybe the next life not. Oh, you've, you've been parent, I don't know how many times. <laughs> yeah, we've been all of it, right? Yeah, right, right. But yeah, like certain people, like, you know, you say, like my daughter is asking me like, you know, why is it born, you know, why is it born here? I'm like, you chose to be born here, you know, <laughs> make the best of it. Yeah. But it, it seems like monks can be so free. They can go off, or people practicing, they just let go of those connections and focus on their practice. But other of us are, seem mm -hmm. tied more tightly. Okay. <sighs> well, just, just, just work on it, realizing that, that every relationship is going to have to end at some point. And so in the meantime, what good can you give the other person to, so that, their memory of your, your relationship will be a good memory and it will have had a good long-term effect on them. Right. That's the best thing, right? That's the best thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll break for a couple hours. We'll meet back here at two o'clock our time and